you know, many of you have expressed to me, either by as a patient of mine or via email or online, that I just got diagnosed with prostate cancer or I have prostate cancer recurrence and I don't want to do androgen deprivation therapy. I really don't. And I hear you. <laughs> I'm with you. Today's conversation is with Dr. Alicia Morgans, who is a genital urinary medical oncologist at Dana-Farber. She's also the medical director of the survivorship program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's a clinician and investigator with expertise in clinical trials and patient-reported outcome measures, as well as incorporating patient preferences and beliefs into the clinical decision-making. And this is why I felt it was important to have Alicia on. She is a partner as a clinical oncologist, as a genital urinary clinical oncologist. She's a partner with patients. What are your preferences? What would you like to do? And perhaps we can meet somewhere in the middle where we can keep you alive, but also with good quality of life. She's very open to integrative approaches like mine and the protocols that um, I've I've shown her and I've told her about. Uh, Alicia has been since 2016 also president of the Medical Advisory Board at Zero, a nonprofit organization to supporting education and research funding for prostate cancer research. We talked about ADT. We talked about who's the right candidate for ADT. Is intermittent therapy with ADT possible? If so, when? And when is it a good idea to include a chemotherapy drug called docetaxel based on the charter trial, which almost all genital urinary oncologists quote and use as a source? This is my conversation with Dr. Alicia Morgans on ADT and more in men with advanced prostate cancer. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention and my goal to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. Today we have Alicia Morgans from Dana Farber. Is that where you are now? I keep I don't know why I keep associating. It's been I've lost track is what it is with Northwestern. I know you were there for a while. Have you adapted Alicia to the Boston area? It's not too different. It's cold, just like Chicago. Yeah, a little <laughs> less windy actually than Chicago, uh, and I have I have adapted for the most part. Thank you. Yeah, Boston is one of my. I hate to say it as a New Yorker, and of course we're supposed to hate Boston Red Sox <laughs> and any, any New England Patriots, but Boston is one of my cities. And actually, Chicago was in a weird way. I was just in Chicago a few weeks ago when we had this storm, and I was in Chicago. Chicago was beautiful, sunny. I was running around Soldier Field, and and while my family here, they were struggling with floods and things like that. That, a weird weekend, but I love my favorite city, so uh, you can't go wrong. Um, so right to it, my patients or my audience online, they are asking me these type of questions, right? They want to know, I really, I, I don't want to do DT. I, I don't, I, you know, chemical creation. Um, how would I feel? You know, a lot of the field, you don't, when, when a patient asks me, Dr. Gio, what would you do? I don't answer that question because I can say whatever I want, right? Once you're in it, 
then you <laughs> may change mind. A lot of members in our field that do a lot of hormone therapy say, I will never do ADT, even you know, the importance of testosterone and so forth. Of course, all the research and comment with people like Abe Morgenthaler, who's out there somewhere, Mohit Kara, for example, that, you know, that they've written extensively, you know, testosterone uh, is not the fuel to prostate cancer. Some patients with prostate cancer, depending on their situation, can be on testosterone, et cetera. So then what that layperson, it provides more confusion about the whole process. So why are we depleting testosterone if it's not, you know, it doesn't cause it? So maybe you could go into that a little bit in terms of why do we do ADT, androgen deprivation therapy? advanced prostate cancer. Sure. And believe me, I think any doctor who treats prostate cancer would rather not have to use androgen deprivation therapy or ADT for their patients. Nobody wants to make anyone feel uncomfortable or have accelerated frailty, loss of muscle mass, mm. the emotional and, and psychological challenges that can be really um, increased with this treatment. So I appreciate the question and I, I appreciate that patients ask it mm. because I would say, number one, there are situations where the use of ADT is at our discretion. Mm. And particularly as we're making some of those decisions with patients, it's so important when we acknowledge this is an area where if you want maximal cancer control, maybe you'll do more ADT or longer ADT or you'll do it at all. But if you're willing to make some compromise in terms of your cancer control and you want to maximize your quality of life, this is at your discretion. You have a decision here. So I think mm. we should always, as physicians, be making those opportunities clear so that patients can really insert their own judgments and values there when they have the full information. But we use ADT because testosterone activates a particular receptor on prostate cancer cells, um, the androgen receptor. This receptor, when activated, it really translocates to the nucleus of the cell and acts on the DNA to really transcribe a whole series of genes in the androgen response element. So just to put this into English, mm. the testosterone activates a receptor. It sets a, a series of events in motion that can allow that cell to divide, to double, to grow, to spread, to cause trouble. And so we take it out of the system to remove the fuel that drives that process in an effort to shut down the cells and hopefully to starve some of the cells so that they apoptose or self-destruct. Mm -hmm. But it is, although it is precision medicine, because it's a specific target and a specific receptor on the cell, it has many effects that are not what we wish, that are outside of the therapeutic benefit and really are the reason that patients and doctors ask this question. So your 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 response implies that yeah, testosterone is can fuel prostate cancer. Are there different types? Are there different? So it does for some and not others. Or a notion that all uh, the modern research indicating that testosterone is not the field. Even people necessarily is not. Um, you know they don't have a higher predisposition to prostate cancer. What's the difference? So there are different types of prostate cancer. I would say a vast majority are adenocarcinomas that are usually very dependent, at least at the beginning, mm -hmm. to stimulation by testosterone. But there are androgen unresponsive or androgen indifferent cells. These often come in the setting where patients have had exposure to different treatments and now have evolved ways for the cancer cell to grow, divide, and cause trouble that's outside of that traditional testosterone-driven pathway. And there are of course, things like neuroendocrine or small cell differentiated tumors, which are even more rare. And these are driven by different genes that are completely outside of testosterone. Although we do think that testosterone may still have some small role, even in those cells. I think 
The reason that we say it, that it is predominantly driven by testosterone is because a majority of these patients still are, at least in the beginning, at first diagnosis, driven by prostate or by testosterone. But lots of different things can happen, especially over the course of treatment and time. Who's the first to find what advanced prostate cancer is? Is it just outside of prostate? Is it, and this is for the listener, obviously I'm familiar, because it's very important uh, when you, what, what exactly is metastatic prostate cancer? Which to where? Sure. So metastatic disease is disease that has spread outside of the prostate, but we would also kind of further define that by saying it's usually disease, cancer cells from the prostate that have spread outside of the pelvis, mm -hmm. except if it is in a bone in the pelvis, that would also be considered metastatic disease. But when we have prostate cancer cells that spread out of the prostate and are just in the lymph nodes mm -hmm. right around the prostate, mm -hmm. we usually call that locally advanced, meaning that it's just sort of stepped out onto the doorstep outside of the prostate and is not truly metastatic or spread more distantly in the body. And then of course, primary site, it's the bone almost all of the time, except when it's not. And then it can spread to soft tissue, lungs, and so forth. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I think if you're thinking about other places that it spreads, it's usually going to be lymph nodes most commonly, and then perhaps lung and, and liver most uncommonly, thankfully, because that, that can be a big challenge for us. So then we know how we define advanced prostate cancer. Who's the candidate for how would you prescribe um, ADT? And maybe you can go over briefly the different forms, the LHRH agonist, antagonist, and antiadrogens uh, briefly. Sure. So we use androgen deprivation therapy in these GNRH agonists and antagonists really commonly when the cancer spread outside the prostate or metastasized, or if we've treated it before and now it's come back and we see a PSA rising, but we don't necessarily see evidence of prostate cancer on scans. We use GNRH agonists, which are medicines usually given or always given, I should say, by injection that essentially turn off the signaling between the pituitary gland and the testes to stop the testes from making testosterone. It's sort of a roundabout way that this happens, though, and there's an initial increase in testosterone production before that testosterone level goes to a very, very low level. And then the GnRH antagonists. If you can, can give an example, Alicia, of those as well. Sure. So an agonist might be luprolide or also called Lupron or Gaserolin or we've got Zolidex too, Triptoralin, Trailstar. So these are some of the common names and generic and brand names. Mm -hmm. um, and then the GnRH antagonists are either injectable or by pill. And Degarelix is one of the uh, injectable version or the injectable version, I should say. And Rilagolix is the oral version. Now, these don't have quite the roundabout way of making testosterone go down, they simply act to inhibit the receptor on the pituitary gland, stop the signal to the testes and have a more rapid reduction of testosterone. And, and these are just two of the other forms that we use. The other option, especially for people who need long-term androgen deprivation therapy is to use surgery. And so you can remove the part of the testicle on each side that makes the testosterone. I think we used to remove the whole testicle on both sides, but more commonly now I've seen people do a partial, it's called orchiectomy to remove part of the testicle on each side and try to reduce testosterone production surgically as well. Is that it's still done? Orchiectomies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I think there are various reasons why some people may want to have that done. And again, this would only really be something we would consider or offer in the setting of someone 
having long-term indefinite need for androgen deprivation therapy. We would not want to do this in a setting where we wanted someone to have the testosterone come back in the future, but it is absolutely still done. And I I have been grateful for the newer approach where it's only part of the testicle that's removed because I think, you know, anything that keeps you more whole, keeps you feeling more normal is so important. And it's stressing, Mm. I think, for people to think about having uh, both of their testicles removed. Yeah, psychologically, it's like women with, you know, when they mastectomies, right? Psychologically, it does a number. I mean, event, same thing that clinical castration there's a psychological component that's just difficult for men. I don't think, you know, I've been doing prostate cancer for over 20 years, seen many patients. I don't think I've seen anyone who have been physically castrated. I've definitely had a number. I think, you know, when you think about people who don't want the fuss or the muss of having to come back for injections, that's a group. And I also have seen people who don't want the financial burden or potential need for that um, do that. And uh, there's actually a study going on. I think it's still happening at University of Chicago where they're looking at this specific approach and offering it to patients. It's interesting when I offer it, more people certainly say yes. No, no one's asking for it. Mm-hmm. But when offered, people do seem interested and sometimes prefer it. Wow. It, very interesting that some people would opt for that. And then there are the, well, before we move on to the iandrogens, the labaraterone and uh, enzalutums of the world, the GNRH antagonists. I don't know if you find this. I find that, which is Akovix, is the trade name. I find that the side effect profile is really low with Orgovix, with its competitor, the injection, Firmagon, same, but the injection site seems to be pretty painful for people. So when people come see me, some, Alicia, um, you may not know this, people come see me to be kind of their quarterback. I'm the trusted source. I'm the, na- you know, I have A, B, and C. What do you think I should do? And who'd see that? And we go through there. So sometimes I said, look, ask, ask your euro on uh, about or your oncologist about, you know, have you seen is there data written that side effect profile and your experience? By the way, I care about your experience as much as I care about your data on this podcast. I find that some we get caught up. We, we need to to be objective in the data. But hey, You've seen, you see you know, 15 of these cases every day. And I, so I care about your experience as well. So feel free to share any of your experience with us. Do you find that there's less side effect profile with orgs as a the trade as opposed to all the others? Well, I think it depends on the side effect. I mean, certainly there is, there's no injection site reaction because yeah. it's a pill. So that's a big plus. And I think that when we think about a Degarelix or Firmagon, you know, the injectable version of the GnRH antagonist certainly when compared to all of the other injectables, it does have a higher risk of having an injection site reaction. And one of the challenges there is that it's given every month. And so you have that more intense injection reaction and you have it every single month, whereas the other injections might be three or four months between shots or even six months, um, which can be just easier to bear. So, so certainly there's no injection site reaction. I do think that sometimes things like Hot flashes seem to be pretty intense on Relagolix or Orgovix. I think it's because the testosterone level just gets so low, but that's not something that I see as a long-lived issue, but more so something that, you know, it's this rapid, dramatic, fast down for the testosterone. And I think that's noticeable, but it's again, not sustained and people seem to deal with it quite well. I think you know, I always watch liver function tests because you can have some LFT abnormality on Orgovix. So I do want to make sure of that. But that's not a side effect that patients would 
ever feel. It's more of a anxiety provoking for the doctor kind of thing. And so generally, I think it's really, really a wonderful drug that I give to people on a regular basis, actually quite often. But the one thing that I think is important to mention about Orgovix is that when you stop those pills, whether you've tried it and it's you've decided this is not for me, I'm not even going to do androgen deprivation therapy, or you've completed your course and now you stop it, the testosterone recovery is faster with Orgovix, that oral agent, than it is with the, at least with the depo injectables, the GnRH agonist luprolide. That's been shown in clinical trial. In practice, it also seems to be the case. And so if a lot of the symptoms or any of the symptoms that you have that are ongoing are really related to low levels of testosterone, the recovery of testosterone can be really helpful, especially for things, as you mentioned, like sexual side effects, like loss of libido and erectile dysfunction. Some of that can improve when we have better normal testosterone with, with recovery. Excellent. I've seen that clinically. I didn't know that that was published where they recover their testosterone or the others. Thank you for getting that. What's your approach? So here's a guy that has advanced prostate cancer or a recurrence. What's your approach? And the reason I ask is this, because it doesn't seem to me like every oncologist is on the same page, right? So there, I've seen some, and I know that it depends on the patient and it depends on their type of disease, of course. But I find that, in, and we're going to kind of do a little overview rather than getting too much into the weeds. But they have advanced prostate cancer that we know that it's outside of the prostate. So probably they're not a candidate for surgical removal or a recurrence after treatment, initial tr- And how do you go about on just a GnRH antagonist only versus a GnRH and an antiandrogen like abiraterone and azalutamide? Or how do you go about that uh, process? What's your thinking process there? Yeah. So I think first, when you see the PSA rising, if someone's already been treated, so to look at that population where the cancer may be coming back, we need to do scans to understand if we have really, we call it radiographic evidence of disease. So is there something we can see on a scan that shows us that there's a cluster of prostate cancer cells big enough to to grab our attention? And usually these days we're using PSMA PET scans to do that. These are more sensitive, more specific for prostate cancer than our older scans like CAT scans and bone scans and even MRI. They can find things that are normal size, but are filled with enough cells to change the color on the scan. And so that is a major advance in terms of our ability to detect detect things earlier. Mm -hmm. If we can see something after a recurrent or or after primary treatments, we will usually use either a GnRH agonist or antagonist plus some other agent, abiraterone or enzalutamide or apalutamide, darolutamide, whatever it is you want to use. And that depends on some specific patient characteristics and kind of the setting that you're in. But if you can see something, whether it's on PET scan or the other imaging modalities, that usually means combined therapy is in the future. And it's definitely more of a gray zone with the PET scan. That's something that we're trying to define. There's actually clinical trials being done to understand if we need to use those combination treatments in the setting of PET scan only measurable disease. But if we could see it on old fashioned imaging, yes, we would probably do that. We might use extra radiation. We don't usually use surgeries, but we might combine that with some radiation as as well. And so that's kind of how we think that through. If you go to a setting where it's just more locally advanced, so you've got your prostate still intact, you've got some lymph nodes in the pelvis. If we can see lymph nodes, that's another setting where we usually are going to use 
sometimes we do surgery, especially if it's only one or two lymph nodes. But if we are clear, that's not going to be a way to cure the patient because we're not sure we're going to get those lymph nodes with, with treatment. We usually will use radiation, both to the prostate, to that, also to those lymph nodes, and then we'll use a GnRH agonist or antagonist plus an extra medicine to really enhance that hormonal approach. I would say too that in both of these settings, we typically try at the time of treatment planning to define a duration of treatment with an ending because we don't want to put these patients in a setting where they're going to be indefinitely treated. Mm. And, you know, There were studies back in the 90s, there was a really, really important study that looked at patients who had a prostatectomy and had lymph nodes that at the time of surgery seemed to have prostate cancer cells in them. And those patients were treated either with immediate hormonal suppression with ADT forever or some ADT at some point in the future when the PSA was elevated, or maybe even the patient had metastatic cancer, so something we could see on scans, and it was better to treat them early in that study. And that really set us on a path of mm. patients potentially getting lifelong hormonal suppression for something that didn't need to be that long. Mm. And I think we've really adjusted our thought process. So that is now an area, again, separate clinical trial, but that's an area of investigation. But no one is currently suggesting, at least in my circles, to put those patients with positive lymph nodes on ADT forever. In any situation where we can limit ADT, we always really need to think about how can we do that. And if we don't know the answer, we should do a clinical trial to try to get that information for patients. I can appreciate that answer, right? You know, I think that, as I said, you know, patients ask, well, don't answer that. I'm not in it. And if I'm in it, then say, but I do care at this point in time without yet a diagnosis, I do care about my quality of life. And so most patients will say, look, I care as much about my quality of life as I care about my longevity. And so it's a trade-off there, or it could be, we were talking offline a little bit, that patients who do the lifestyle protocols of, I would say any lifestyle protocol that's healthy, A, or B, lifestyle protocols that are prescribed, uh, I find that they're still really, really, really good. They do, you know, almost everything and anyone to do uh, with the except sexual activity that, that hit. Um, in most cases, you know, for whatever reason, it's not done that way. So what's your approach with intermittent ADT. I think there again, most people are a little bit all over the place. And I don't know if that's because a whole lot of uh, written on it scientifically, or is it because kind of you just going by your experience? So intermittent, how would that look like in your office? So I think one of the reasons that it can be variable is because the studies that looked at it had really high thresholds for when ADT would be restarted after um, after the PSA started to rise. What PSA would you use? And it could be four, it could be 20. I mean, these were, some of them are very high. I think in clinical practice these days, I absolutely use this intermittent ADT approach, usually in the setting of biochemical recurrence, which just to make sure it's clear is when the prostate's been treated and the PSA has gone down and it seems like everything's been cured, but at some point the PSA starts to increase again and we do scans and the scans don't show any area of prostate cancer on the scan. So we know there's cancer because the PSA is going up, but we can't find it on the scan. Mm. PET scans make this more complicated. We might be able to see it on a PET scan and it would still be called biochemical recurrence, but that's this gray area that we kind of just spoke about. So in that setting, we know from data that there is no clear benefit to ongoing ADT forever 
versus ADT that is on for a while, stops and gives someone a break or a holiday from their Mm -hmm. hormonal therapy, lets them recover some testosterone and hopefully improve quality of life, and then restarts when the PSA goes up. In my practice, I usually negotiate with the patient as we're planning to move forward with this approach. What PSA is right for you? Where do you feel comfortable? Because some people feel very comfortable watching their PSA go up and up and you know they it's okay with them yeah. as long as we do scans and there's nothing there. There's a psychological there's- component to it for sure. Yeah. Yes. Other people, you know, it's <laughs> PSA hits 0.02, 0.03, 0.04. No, I can't handle that. So um, you have to read really clear. Now, if your P- if your threshold is only a PSA of 0.04 or 0.05, that's so low that you'll never really have a good holiday if that's really what you're thinking about. So maybe intermittent therapy isn't for you. But to d- decide as a team, what's the PSA for you? Is it going to be one? Is it going to be two? Is it going to be 0.5? And if we see something on a PET scan, then we restart treatment. What's it going to be? So we define that. And then we do um, therapy usually for somewhere around a year at a time. It could be as little as six months, but especially if there's a really dramatic PSA decline, but usually for about a year, then we try to do a break. We let the the treatment wear off, the PSA and testosterone will eventually usually start to rise. It, the PSA reaches a threshold and then we restart and then we do it. What's your threshold there again at the threshold, let's say where there's no scans that show any positive METs. What's your threshold just PSA wise before they look, we need to start you up again. Is there, and, if, and is there a standard threshold that everybody abides by? No, there's not a standard threshold. And if, if the PSMA PET scan is negative, yeah. I'm pretty comfortable letting somebody just ride because a PSA protein in your blood cannot hurt you. It's simply telling you that there is cancer cell activity. But if you don't have a cluster of cancer cells that's even big enough to see on a PET scan, then you don't have much going on in there. Mm. And it's certainly nothing that's going to cause you symptoms from itself. And Mm. so to give someone symptoms and side effects from the treatment when there's no way that the cancer itself can cause them symptoms or side effects And when I don't have any evidence that shows I can change the trajectory of the cancer's history and the future of the patient in terms of cancer control by starting treatment, I don't start treatment. But I would say it is pretty unusual to get to a PSA of 10, 20 uh, without having a PET scan that's positive. That's that's unusual. I did have a patient a few years ago had a PSA of 40. Hmm. All scans were negative. But on, and on the PET scan, just a very faint, tiny little pelvic lymph node that looked like it was positive. We put that patient on a trial for some things, but that's the highest PSA I've seen where there's been absolutely nothing on any scan. And even the lymph node that was positive was a normal size and shape. So it didn't show up on the those traditional images, but it did show up eventually on the PET scan. So absolute value of PSA in that case versus PSA velocity, would you get to a, yeah. a five with high velocity? Would that change your mind? Yeah. So it's absolute PSA does not really affect from my perspective, but the PSA doubling time absolutely changes things. We And we have new evidence to show that um, when the PSA doubling time is less than 10 months mm. in that setting where you've not been on ADT before, this is a population that can benefit not only from treatments with ADT, mm. but actually in intensified treatment by adding enzalutamide. So this is new data that came out, I think in May of this year, and it has shifted, has shifted at least our understanding. I don't believe that it's affected the label of enzalutamide at this point in time, but certainly has shifted our understanding. And what I think is interesting is that despite that, 
patients may or may not choose to actually do that. Because again, as you've said, sometimes their quality of life is at least as important, if not more important than their cancer control. And not every patient would want to start any therapy at that point in time, let alone double double therapy with the GNRH agonist or antagonist plus enzalutamide. Right. And last, obviously, if, well, not obviously, maybe I'll let you, if intermittent hormone therapy option, you can do this for however long. Uh, well, I guess that's a question. The other question is that would lower hormone metastatic disease. So you, you can do intermittent therapy for any duration of time, as long as the cancer cells are still stunted in terms of their growth and their production of PSA protein by by starting the treatment, as long as they're responsive to that, then you can keep going with your intermittent therapy. Great. Um, and hormone resistance disease is what I meant to say, Alicia. That's what I meant oh, to say. Hormone, yeah. So, so we want to... We, we do. I think that you, there's not great evidence that starting therapy really changes the castration resistance, but obviously the time to castration resistance, but obviously if you don't start treatment, you can't get to castration resistance. Mm -hmm. So, so there's that, but we do, the only evidence we really have in this hormone sensitive biochemical sensitive or biochemical recurrent situation is that intensified therapy, when we compare it to GnRH agonist therapy alone, even in an intermittent style for both of them, we can make it longer to castration resistance and longer to metastasis with the intensified strategy. But we don't have great data that we're changing survival or even time to castration resistance necessarily when we're using ADT alone, especially in an unselected population. This biochemical recurrent zone is a really murky, murky. Mm, I agree. One of the things before we started recording, I said, look, I'm seeing great things with these patients, except my only, my only regret is that I wish I would have started recording my findings when I started. I find that, you know, Gio, how do you treat prostate cancer in natural methods? I don't know that, you know, that's a tough to treat prostate. I'm treating the microenvironment. I'm treating the microenvironment with lifestyle factors and lifestyle modifications that seem to do a lot of good patients cancer perspective and of course quality of life you know is sustained or improved in cases mm -hmm. so i'm a fan on certain uh, cases where they are an edt along with aggressive style interventions and i find that these men do extremely well so much so that they're like look i don't want to go back on adt i mean i feel really good and you know we have to see what the case is and make that decision i know it's not treatment yet but what are your thoughts on the potentiality of BAT, so bipolar and therapy. And you, do you feel it will be an option? You know, prostate cancer changes very rapidly and information and science, right? So I was talking to Mark Emberton from the UK. I don't know if you know him. He's a focal guy and things. And he says, Gio, I really believe that at some point, you know, we will be able to diagnose prostate cancer accurately without a biopsy. And I'm like, whoa, I mean, that's Right, a small German study that came did a did a PSMA PET scan MRI no biopsy they all had cancer those MRI no biopsy they all had cancer those that had a PSMA positive and a high pyrat were positive and he says that where that's going so I I do think that BAT is you know super physiologic therapy given to patients that might you know hopefully it will show that benefit there along with antiprobation therapy uh, intermittently, I believe. So number one, do you think it's going to work out and it's going to a standard of care at some point for some type of patient? I do think that there's the possibility as long as clinicians actually feel comfortable too in yeah. monitoring and giving yeah. the treatment, because the challenge there is 
that there's a, I think a fear around safety and fear that we could make things worse. And in the studies, the investigators were really careful about who they chose to include in those studies and made sure that these patients didn't have cancer that was about to compress their spinal cord or um, cancer that was about to block their ureters or their, you know, their urinary outflow when they would give testosterone, just in case the testosterone actually increased the size of the cancer lesions. And that safety piece is, I think, the biggest hesitation because it does seem like it is absolutely helpful for some patients. And um, and I think when we look at the, the muscle mass and the quality of life, functional data that comes out of it, and some of this has been published and is really interesting, it suggests that people do better as we would expect when they have some testosterone to build the muscle mass again and to help give them the energy that they may not have in, in, as high levels when they have low testosterone, especially when they're not on your, your lifestyle protocols. So, mm-hmm. so I do think that it will get there. I think that some more data and their ongoing trials will be really helpful in that, especially as more investigators participate in those trials, learn how to do it within that more structured environment, and then can take that knowledge out to their, their clinic practice and really help other patients with it too. It's, it's all about safety and patient selection there, but hopefully it will continue its progress and make it out to the masses at some point. I find that it's also has to do with the practitioners to do these type of treatments. It's, it seems like there's a, a whole lot to lose from, you know, giving TRT uh, to patients. Some are doing it with, you know, should sign many uh, disclaimers. Uh, but they're doing it, and I, and it's interesting. I, I know that um, uh, Dr. Sam Demid is Demid out there in uh, Hopkins studying it carefully, um, and I'm trying on the, on the podcast. Um, so hopefully he'll share some light on that. That's great. Um, so who's the patient? So charted is one of studies that uh, it's been going on maybe since 2014 or so, eight nine, and a lot of published almost like the the gift that keeps on giving because you're still seeing data coming out from trial. Uh, briefly, I'll say that charting of EDT with Ocetaxol as a treatment combination, and so then I've seen what I've seen is significant improvement. Actually, you know, I, I think is a an, an additional year with low side effects. Recently, I saw that even because then you would wonder, well, what if the patient is not healthy? Would you give them docetax? It seems like you, um, based on uh, videos, I think I've seen or yours, some, some papers I've read. So can you talk about the charted trial a little bit? And I still don't see that. I don't see a lot of my patients on docetaxel trials have suggested that is a viable option for some. What is the charted trial and what's your approach to recommend docetaxel along with ADT? Sure. So as you said, the charted trial was first published back in 20, well, I think it was presented in 2014, published in 2015. So it's definitely data that has helped to shape all of the studies after it. And mm-hmm. I think when we think of, we think of it in that context, it helps us to understand how we use it today. Um, the combination of ADT and docetaxel was most helpful in that trial for patients who had what we called high volume metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. So people who had you know, a much larger volume than just a few lymph nodes in the pelvis. Um, They had to have multiple bone metastases or they had to have an organ involved. So it was really this more aggressive phenotype. And we think that the reason that the addition of docetaxel to the hormonal treatment was helpful is because we're kind of hitting the cancer from multiple angles and really trying to get it its defenses in whatever way those defenses are put up by the cancer cell. Um, When we think about this data, though, in the context of treatments today, it's really, I think, 
more of the backbone of things like the Peace One trial and the Arisense trial, where we see the charted combination of ADT and docetaxel was actually the control arm in both of those studies. And the treatment arm in both of those studies included either abiraterone in addition to the ADT and chemotherapy or darolutamide in addition to the ADT and chemotherapy. And what we saw in those is that the addition of those extra pills actually improved even on the ADT and chemotherapy that was uncharted. So these days, if you're going to think about a patient with high volume metastatic prostate cancer, more aggressive phenotype, we actually recommend ADT docetaxel like charted, but we add on either darolutamide or abiraterone to get even more of that oomph and more of that kind of approaching the cancer cell from another of another angle. And at this point in time, the charted regimen's not even recommended in the NCCN guidelines, the ones that the oncologists use to kind of guide their care, unless you're adding on those extra pills. And we're really pulling out the patients, I think, with high volume, lots and lots of cancer that's spread and is seen on the scan, or sometimes young and healthy patients who have metastatic prostate cancer from the moment of diagnosis. We call that de novo metastatic disease. So really, we know that it's going to be aggressive cancer, and we're trying to be aggressive right right back to it. I would also say that we have to be really careful because we have to know which patients are going to be strong enough in terms of their physical fitness and Mm. function to get chemotherapy, and those patients who really aren't best served by giving that additional um, poison, which is essentially what chemo is, Mm. um, those patients who were not well enough to get chemotherapy were not included in any of the trials. Mm. So if they weren't well enough to get on the trial, they certainly should not be getting chemotherapy in a regular practice. And so that's also another consideration. What's well enough? What's How is that defined? So the way that I try to use like a quick and dirty or easy way to sort of figure it out, if people are up and walking around functional for at least half of the day, then they probably are going to be reasonably well enough to get chemotherapy. If they are sleeping half of the day, if they're really kind of not able to do much on their own, completely, you know, bed bound, this is not a person who can take that kind of a more intensive treatment. So up and walking around, functional, awake, at least half of the day is the basic bottom line. And then you can look at things like different organ functions. You have to make sure they have enough, their blood counts are okay, that they don't have a predisposition to get infection or other problems. So there are other little things that we look at, but that's the main one. So the, I guess the trifecta, an antiandrogen, that seems to be, that sounds harsh and strong. And I, the first thing I would wonder is, What's going to happen with my quality of life? Now, I'll say this. What I've seen with docetaxel, I know it's chemo. And, you know, certain words have a trigger for people. Once you say chemo, that's it, right? Because they've seen more aggressive cancers, different cancers. It wasn't a good, the visuals, the optics were not great there. I find that docetaxel, again, mild relative to others. Um, I find lose their hair, um, though I think that if you do, I think baldness is great, no problem, uh, no, bo- <laughs> no suicide. They do sometimes they get a, they do develop a neuropathy. The acupuncture helps a lot with that, say, and um, and lower uh, blood cell count and things like that. But in general, they're not out of it completely, and they're actually very functional. So, a have is that 
pretty much what you've seen with people just on docetaxel? And then what happens when you're on all these on these three drugs? I would guess that uh, the side effects are more intense. So, so your impression of docetaxel is absolutely correct. I've had a lot of people work while getting docetaxel. Maybe they take an afternoon nap a couple days mm -hmm. during the week of the treatment itself. But in general, it is, as you said, and just to mention that if hair loss is a concern, but I agree, you know, bald is beautiful, but if hair loss <laughs> is a concern, you. people have all kinds of reasons for that. The cold caps that you can use are actually highly effective. They are not usually covered by insurance, but there are companies that will do that. And it's more commonly used in breast cancer populations, but absolutely can be used in cold caps, cold caps. Yep. So, so what it's like a very cold thing that goes on the head. It reduces the um, blood flow to the scalp. And then through that reduces chemotherapy exposure to the follicles. And, and really I've had patients oh. keep their hair, like pretty much nothing has changed on their head, mm. um, or at least vis visually from an outside pers outsider's perspective. So, mm. so that's there as an option. When you add on the pills, it's not that there's, thankfully, there's not a synergy between all the side effects. Um, you typically have the side effects from the ADT, mm -hmm. you have the side effects from the pills, and you have the side effects from the chemo, they're all added together, but they, they don't make each other worse. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a relatively low burden to add the pills onto the chemotherapy. If there was strong concern, what people could do is do the ADT and docetaxel and then add the pill on after the chemo was done. But generally, I don't think that I don't think people usually find it find that necessary um, because it's relatively low burden to add the pills onto the shots, and then the docetaxel side effects are just sort of added in there as well, but are not as bad as, as certainly as other chemotherapies. Is there an intermittent hormone therapy opportunity in this particular case in the right patient? So this is a great question, and I think there are definitely studies trying to investigate this, and we are trying to see if we can do some of this in clinical practice as well. In settings where we think we can radiate all of the areas of disease, it's hard in a high volume patient. So a patient with many spots on their scan is less likely to get radiation to all those spots. But in a setting where we maybe have less metastatic prostate cancer, but the patient is young and really healthy and wants to be aggressive and use all three at once. If we can also then radiate any spots that we can see on a scan and the prostate itself, we have had patients with PSAs that drop to undetectable. And after two years or so of maximal treatment, systemic therapy, we call it, we have stopped treatment. And there's actually a study going on right now where treatment is stopped to see if maybe we can stop treatment, testosterone can recover, and we can cure some of those patients and stop all their therapy and potentially never restart it at a best case scenario. But in a worst case scenario, just restart it and get back, get back in the swing of things. We're doing it right now. Oh, that's great. I can't wait for that. I really do wish that more lifestyle intervention approaches were involved in these studies and then compared to regular lifestyle, whatever it is that they did prior to the intervention, obviously is a bias of mine, but I think it's a game changer. Um, so I'll speak to David Weiss to consider that. Actually, he has, as it relates to exercise and weight resistant exercise. Alicia, that's it for me. Any final thoughts? I would just say that I so appreciate that you talk about these things with your audience and ensure that people are aware that we always have choices. And sometimes the choices that seem hard, like doing a lifestyle change, give you back so much. The dividends are so high yeah. that 
it absolutely is worth it. And I, I could not agree with you more on the importance there and on the importance of continuing to study this and to give that evidence base to show people, look, it seems like a hard hurdle to overcome, but it is well worth it. I love it. Thank you so much for being on. On such a pleasure to meet you really, and to share some of this knowledge with me personally and my audience. Thanks for being on, Alicia. All the best. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. All right, everyone. See you next time. This is Dr. Geo signing off. Talk to you soon. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.